The Pinball Network is online. Launching the Pinball Tapes. My name is Zach Colligan, and I'm possessed by pinball. If you're listening to this, there's a glimmer of hope that I can instill into you the joy and fascination I get from this kinetic wonder. This is the Pinball Tape. Hello, good people. I'm back in the pod seat and ready to ramble once again. I hope you've all been fueling your own silver ball mania and continuing to pursue your own electric dreams and many more 80s catchphrases. Well, as per usual, I'm rather fired up about today's episode. Whoo, boy. Especially because of the alluring historical nature of this rare machine. Now, if you could see my fingers, I'm making air quotes around the word rare in a facetious manner because I'm excruciatingly aware in this hobby that this word can be thrown around in a highly reckless manner. If I had a pinball for every time some enthusiastic seller had listed a pin game as rare on the marketplace, I would have enough ball bearings to rotate the wheels of an Australian road train across the great sandy desert. That was for you, Dr. John, (laughs) the king of Australianisms. All hyperbole aside, when I say rare, I damn well mean it. So what am I talking about today? Well, today we are musing over the gorgeous 1979 Stern Electronics Cosmic Princess. So as I say every time, for those of you playing at home, dial it up on the IPDB or International Pinball Database. If you just search IPDB Cosmic Princess, it'll bring up a whole lot of pics. And you can follow along, but not if you're driving, because I don't want you crashing and blaming me. So this machine is beautiful, and it's in fact the first proper reconditioning I ever did of a totally dead machine. I found the beautiful princess in her time of need sitting in a random auction, dirty, broken and unloved. I kind of messed up the bidding and I missed the first time and I was a bit sad about it and then it got passed in and then it was in the next one and I was the only one that bid on it. So it was all meant to be. And the unique satisfaction I had bringing her back to life will stay with me forever. It has gilded my restorative drive to continue this noble pursuit until the day I die. So I hear you say, so why the use of the R word, Zach? Rare, that is. I usually find that, for the most part, if you vaguely research games are listed as rare, there were usually thousands made back in the day. There are exceptions, of course, and our superb feature game today is one of them. The definitive point of interest about this game, however, is its historical context in regards to international cooperation between the US of A and my homeland of Australia. From 1978 until 1980, Stern Electronics collaborated with Leisure and Allied Industry of Perth, or LIE for short, to make eight pinball machines. These machines were sent from the US in what was called a knockdown kit. The kit included the playfield and the back glass, but LIE had to source the cabinet and playfield glass in Australia. 
over the years, many of the American-made versions made their way back to Australia, but you can tell which ones were the knockdown kits specifically sent to lie because they have a lie manufacturer plate as opposed to a Stern Electronics serial number. So what games were sent down to Australia? They were 1978's Nugent, based on the, uh, the rock star Ted Nugent, <laughs> who's apparently right-wing and a bit iffy. That's the vibe I'm getting. And uh, in 1979, we have Dracula, Hot Hand, Magic, Meteor, and Trident. And then in 1980, we had Galaxy. All excellent games. What makes the mighty Cosmic Princess stand out from the pack is that it was the only one out of the eight that was manufactured for lie, but didn't also get produced in the US. This fascinates me, and it adds to the mystique and mystery surrounding the production of this superb game. The designer and artist are also unlisted on the IPDB. I haven't come across this very often, especially not with a game from the 70s when the industry was absolutely booming. Regarding the designer, I did a bit of detective work and I thought I'd do some guessing because no one else has and why not? <laughs> I can make stuff up. It's my own podcast, damn it. In the 70s, after Sam and Gary Stern bought Chicago Coin and started the company that Cosmic Princess is made from, Stern Electronics, there were three main designers, Harry Williams, and yes, it's the man you're thinking of the main man from Williams Pinball Company who made some incredible games, Mike Cuban from Sea Witch and Trident fame, and the amazing Steve Kirk. Now, Steve Kirk's games have been well documented and celebrated. Please refer to the Silver Ball Chronicles, Episode 2, Stern Electronics. No, not that stern. For the details surrounding that, they do an excellent summation of Stern Electronics. And Steve Kirk famously insisted on getting design credit on the play field for his first game, which came out after Cosmic Princess, so that we can rule out Steve Kirk. So that leaves us with Mike Cuban and Harry Williams. Now, Harry Williams spent his life dabbling in pinball designs and was renowned for his innovations. In fact, Harry Williams invented the tilt bob. And if you look at his design for Stern Electronics, Wildfire... F-Y-R-E, there are actually no slings around the flippers. And the slings, or the slingshots that repel the ball from either side, are about approximately halfway up the playfield, and then it's just like the Cosmic Princess. So there's similarities there. On the other hand, if you look at the playfield for Mike Cuban's Electronimo, which apparently is a great game, it's very similar in every other way, but it does have slingshots near the flippers. So it's a bit of a noodle scratcher, really. But what I take from this is that there's a very good chance that one of these amazing designers made this game, and that gives it the promise of a very exceptional pedigree indeed. I'll be honest too, I tried to find why Stern didn't also produce this in the US, but I haven't been able to find any info. I know that Gary Stern, uh, <laughs> he's uh, the CEO of the biggest pinball company in the world, just now called Stern, uh, and obviously from Stern Electronics originally, is always looking forward. And if you ask Gary, what's the best game? It's the one that's on the line. <laughs> so we ain't getting any info from him. I don't think he tends to look back very much. 
Cosmic Princess is an excellent game, and despite being up against some real classics on this list, it's definitely not an afterthought. So regarding the number of units produced and how rare it actually is, let's put it in perspective. So out of the eight games produced, there were 2,437 Nugents and 234 of those were made in Australia. Dracula, there was 3,350 units made all up, 262 made in Australia. Hot Hand, 3,793, so that one did pretty well. And there's only 324 produced in Australia. Magic, 2,202, 264 in Australia. Meteor, 7,389. Clear winner there. Meteor is a great game. There was 423 of those made under Lion Australia. Trident, 3,757. Another pretty good seller. 262 made of those in Australia. And Galaxy, 4,947 and 183 produced in Australia. So then we come to the Cosmic Lady. They only produced 336 units. That was it. And they were all sent to Australia. And for that time, that is crazy low units. There is so much mystery surrounding this entire machine. And even the very materials used to make the game has got a bit of allure surrounding it. According to the IPDB, some of the playfields appear to be made out of different compositions of plywood. The lighter colour playfields have a checklist stapled on the underside by a Joe Vega and appear to originate from the US. That was true for the copy that I owned. There is also apparently darker coloured playfields that, according to a wood expert that the IPDB consulted, it's a mixture of maple and poplar and theoretically sourced in Australia. So I guess they may have been manufacturing playfields here? I don't know. The plot thickens. So why does this solid state beauty resonate with me so much? It's because I'm a South Aussie boy and there seem to be quite a few cosmic ladies in my state. I love the nostalgia this game invokes. My brother-in-law was particularly fond of this game and he grew up playing it in his local fish and chip shop. He particularly remembers playing this game. From all accounts, the Cosmic Princess is also a lot rarer these days because apparently, oh my god, this breaks my heart, they were seen as a disposable commodity and some owners would throw them away after they became superseded by a new one. And spe- <laughs> I couldn't help but bring this up this podcast. Speaking of the heart-wrenching thought of destroying machines, has anyone actually watched the film Tommy? Oh, in case you're unaware, and I'm sure you are, Tommy is the pinball featuring musical about a deaf, dumb and blind kid who plays a mean pinball. So Tommy the song has been the most dreaded trope a pinball enthusiast can hope to hear. Whenever there is any snippet of media or any whiff about pinball in popular culture, they reel out the Who's song and talk about wizards. Man, I found this film to be so painful. Although the section where Elton John battles Tommy 
played by Roger Daltrey of The Who, and Elton John is singing the song, and he has a custom keyboard on his pinball machine. So he's somehow playing piano and pinball at the same time, competing on a stage. <laughs> it really has to be seen to be believed. And Roger Daltrey's performance, oh, I don't really rate it. He's trying to play a deaf, dumb and blind kid, which would be difficult for a good actor. And I remember one sequence in particular, when he wins the competition, they all hoist him up on their shoulders and he's got a beanie with a silver pom-pom that I think he gets for winning, I think. Oh, man. And oh, to top that all off, there's a sequence where they destroy a whole lot of pinball machines. Oh, man. Oh, hard to watch. Haunts me in my dreams. But I digress. So back to the Cosmic Princess. Speaking of rare and amazing innovations, this may, and I'm doing more air quotes here, be a world first in pinball. Now, I pay heed to Ron Hallett of the Superball Chronicles and, of course, the great Slam Tilt podcast, who often says this might look like a first in pinball, but often an EM has done it previously. Now, I'd wager this is not the case, but I'm not 100% sure. So... If you're an Aussie operator in 1979 and you wanted a sparkly new cosmic princess for your continental delicatessen, you had the option to add a topper for your game, a photo dispensing photomat unit. Basically, it was a Polaroid camera in a box that took an instant photo of you and dispensed it when you beat the high score. Surely that is one of the best toppers ever. Sadly, though, because this was an optional extra, not many of the purchasers at the time wanted to spend the extra money, and this makes them incredibly rare. There is little to no references to this unit on the interweb at all. The best image I've been able to uncover, if you want to check on the IPDB, is actually on the flyer. It's a white, slightly triangular, maybe trapezoid's the right word, contoured box with a square screen in the middle that I'm assuming hides the camera. On the left side, it says, Beat High Score, Win Free Photo. And on the right side it says, when light flashes, look into camera. Photo will be dispensed automatically five seconds after light stops flashing. This astounds me for its time. Like, I've just never heard of anything like this before. And we've only started to see this type of technological innovation with digital cameras. I believe beginning with 2017's uh, Dialed In by Jersey Jack Pimble, designed by Pat Lawler who's a genius. And this adds fuel to the fire that the Cosmic Princess wasn't really a throwaway idea because the added cost of producing and designing these photomat units showed that someone really took to this task and ran with it. I mean, unless, I guess on the other side of the coin, they were like, oh no, we'll never sell these. We better do this fantastic topper. But it just seems like a lot of design and production that went into this. And I mean, I was discussing this with my lovely wife the other night. I mean, did it just give you a Polaroid? And that was it. So you had some random Polaroid of you standing by the machine. Or was it some sort of, I'm hoping it was some sort of special film that says, high score Cosmic Princess or something on there. Because, I mean, that's amazing itself. I mean, probably not. But, oh, man, I love the idea of it. I guess if you think about it too, it's probably a relatively simple thing that when you get a high score, like, I guess, when it sets off the knocker, which is the, um, as I've chatted about before, if you're not aware, the knocker is like a solenoid with a sort of a a metal uh, piston, if you will, that hits the side of the cabinet to let you know that you're the man and you've won a free credit. The same kind of theory to set off a camera, I guess, and take a photo. 
I've personally never seen one to date, and I would love to hear from anyone who has a working unit. This is exactly the sort of thing that really floats my boat. Like Laserdisc, another favourite topic of mine, please write into the pinballtapes at gmail.com if you've got any info about these or photos or anything, I'd love to see it. talk about the art on this fine game. I mean, basically, in a nutshell, we've got a serious Age of Aquarius groovy vibe going on. Like the designer, the name of the artist is unfortunately not listed, so we just don't know. Now, the Cosmic Princess, like a lot of games pre-late 80s, early 90s, has an actual back glass made of mirrored glass as opposed to a translite, which is made of acrylic. Sadly, the Cosmic Princess backglasses are usually notoriously trashed and flaked. Oh, I've seen some absolute dodgy ones over the years. Something about the paint they use didn't cope with the hours and years of heat generated by the old incandescent glows behind the backglass. As I mentioned in previous podcasts, because they were on for hours and hours on end, the incandescent globes that illuminate the backglass from behind heat up and dry out the paint and sadly make it flake away. Most Cosmic Princesses I've seen are really quite bad. My, my lovely wife referred to mine as the Scaly Princess. <laughs> she was very lizard-like, I admit. And I actually spent hours upon hours digitally touching up an alternate translite that I have since shared with fellow enthusiasts, but never actually printed it out myself. And feel free to get in touch at thepimpletapes at gmail.com if you'd like a copy of that. I'm obviously not selling it because I wouldn't be allowed to do that, but I'm just happy to give it away. So what are we looking at? Looking at a very nicely framed back glass, in my opinion. The Cosmic Princess is front and centre. She's got flowing blonde locks, looking very cosmic for sure, and is dressed, I'd say, a Sinbad-esque bikini, sort of, <laughs> of its time, when they were trying to attract, yes, young dudes for the most part to play these games. She's pointing her cosmic finger into the sky as it flashes with cosmic energy. Behind her are star signs in a circular formation, Lots of flora motifs, stars, and swirling universal imagery. There's also a couple of cosmic maidens entwined around the planets with flowing robes. Now, moving to the playfield, the playfield art's excellent. So, what have we got in the playfield? We've got white stars, blue sky, splashes of red and astrological symbols, and they all come together in an excellent melange of colours. We also have the honey yellow plastics, all bearing star signs, and then our two cosmic ladies up the back, left and right draped over the plastics, looking cosmic and ready to tell your future. And finally, we have the Cosmic Princess herself, with flowers in her hair, reaching out for the stars above. Now, I have a particular affinity with this playfield, as it was my first extremely successful rags to riches mylar removal. Oh, mylar removal. Oh, two words that strike terror into this amateur restorer's heart. So what exactly is mylar? Well, some people use the word mylar generically to refer to polyester film or plastic sheet. In reality, mylar brand is a registered trademark owned by DuPont Tejin Films for a specific family of plastic sheet products made from the resin polyethylene Terraflalate, <laughs> PET. 
The true generic terms for this material are either polyester film, polyester sheets, or plastic sheet. Because polyester film is less permeable to gases than other plastics, it is often favoured in the food packing industry. When used as a laminate, it provides increased shelf life and freshness, as well as an excellent barrier against moisture and gas, notably oxygen. Whew! Hope you're all taking notes. So basically, mylar has been used for decades as a playful protector on pinball machines. It's stuck down over the top of the silk-screened artwork on the wooden playfield as a large, irregular-shaped sheet, and there are often smaller ones for outlines, etc. Basically covers all the main places, and if applied correctly, it can prevent playful wear for years and years and years. Devastatingly, though, the application was sometimes left in the hands of the purchaser. <laughs> oh, man. If you've ever witnessed the horrifying sight of badly applied mylar on a beautiful old game, you know why I feel a creeping dread even just thinking about it. For certain manufacturers, games were delivered without any sort of coating over the playfield, and operators were given a bespoke sheet of mylar for them to apply. From my experience, it seems Stern Electronics left Mylar application in the hands of the operators. These great games were made on the cheap, and wouldn't surprise me if this was another cost-cutting measure. I can't 100% confirm that, but it'll be interesting to hear from other Stern Electronic pinball owners to see if they've had similar issues with their Mylar. And as a teaser, I will go into much greater detail about Stern Electronics in a future episode, so keep your ears ready for that. Back on Mylar, and I'm going to show my age here, if you've ever attempted to cover your school books with a clear contact, you realise how fraught with peril this exercise is. Times that by a hundred with a random operator at the helm and you have Air Bubble City. Air bubbles not only look ugly, but create havoc with a rolling ball, often diverting it unexpectedly. If they get punctured, it's also a great home for ball dust to collect. There is also the issue of the mylar being applied crooked, and this can often make a safe ball transgression into an extremely dangerous one. I've also had the experience quite recently dealing with overlapping mylar. So, so somebody's obviously put down the main piece and then put down a side piece, started at one end, and by the time they got to the other end, they were like, oops, overlapping, and that causes ball hang-ups and all sorts of things. Definitely not what the designer intended. So the best scenario when it comes to mylar is when it was applied in the factory. And again, speaking from experience as opposed to research fact, something I do a lot here on the Pimble Tapes, but it seems that Gottlieb especially adopted this method. Most Gottlieb playfields I've dealt with have been generally in excellent condition and the mylar stuck down perfectly straight in all the right places. So getting back to our astrological princess, when I acquired her, the mylar was in extremely bad shape. Not only was it crooked and bubbling, but the edges were peeling up in a number of places. And it was one of those situations where I... As I always do, I stripped the playfield and gave it a really good clean and just looked at it and it was very disappointing <laughs> straight away. It looked a lot better, obviously, but oh, I could just see that it was asking for more drastic steps to be taken. So, in the life of an amateur restorer, this is probably one of the biggest and most stressful decisions you can make on an old game with terrible mylar. It's quite simple really, remove or deal. I've done a lot of research about mylar removal, and the general consensus is that basically it's a crapshoot, a gambit that could go either way. 
The reason for this depends on the history of the machine, which you simply don't know. If it spent all its life in full sun, the mylar is going to react very differently to a machine that was stored away or even spent years getting pummeled in a smoke-filled bar. So why the stress about this, you ask? Well, when peeling up old mylar, the absolute worst-case scenario is that the artwork comes up with it. Oh, I've seen some horror stories online of people attempting this process and absolutely ruining a playfield when the artwork almost totally came up with it. I've said this before on previous pinball tape episodes. It's not currently an arrow in my pinball quiver, so this fills me with dread. It's obviously not all doom and gloom, however. There is every chance things will work out, and there are a few things you can do to assist the process. Primarily, have a really good look at the problematic areas and the machine as a whole. If the general running of the game is working, as it should, and the areas of bubbling are minimal, then it's probably best just to leave it. If you are getting serious about jumping in though, something to look for is planking. This is when the playfield has begun to crack and you can see numerous tiny fault lines, if you will, in the wood. This is not definitive, unfortunately, but I've read in many different restoration threads that it is not advised to attempt mylar removal if this is occurring. So, if there's no planking and you're still moving forward, the next step is to ideally find an edge that has begun to peel in an inconspicuous area. The idea here is to peel up a very small amount and see how it reacts with the art underneath. This also gives you a chance to quickly backtrack and put the mylar back down if the playfield destruction happens en masse. If you are attempting this, you should always apply heat to the mylar to assist with its removal. Cracking out an old hairdryer and carefully applying heat, can't stress that enough, you can't cook the playfield, as you slowly peel, I can't stress that enough as well, go very slow, take your time, that's a very good method here. Just talking about it takes me back there, <laughs> the shaking hands, the sweat on my brow, and exercise in nerves to be sure. I was reading one restoration thread where a dude had stripped and removed the playfield and left it in his car for a few hours on a really hot day to prep the removal process. A great idea, but probably not so practical for the average restorer. So in regards to my own experience, let's just say I was very lucky indeed. The mylar was extremely bubbled and peeling at nearly all the edges, and as I said, after giving it a thorough clean, the results are disappointing to say the least. It had obviously not been applied at the factory as it was terribly crooked. So I took a deep breath and started peeling. And aside from a few minute bits of paint, it all came off surprisingly easy. It kind of fell off, to be honest. The bubbling alone gave me a pretty good indication that the mylar had already separated from the silk-screened art. But I will stress, you can never be sure in this process, unfortunately. It's always a gamble. the next question you might ask is what do you do with a non-protected playfield? Well you have a few choices in this instance. I'll start with the amateur restorer's answer and that is not much at all. Now don't write in or start yelling at your device, I obviously don't mean that. As a side note, I once heard a famous podcaster quip that nothing makes you feel more like a ghost than yelling at a podcast. <laughs> so in regards to an unprotected playfield, at a minimum, you absolutely must clean and wax the surface. As I mentioned before in a previous episode, in Australia, the Uber restorers recommend a product for cleaning that is called Shellite that you can get from most hardware stores. 
In the US, this is called naphtha. It's surprisingly lighter fluid and is one of the least abrasive products you can use on a playfield. It cleans really well and evaporates quickly. Do be careful not to light up a cigar while you're doing it though, or you might lose your eyebrows. For waxing, as I mentioned before also on a previous episode, a good Caranuba car wax will give your playfield an excellent level of protection. I use Meguiar's Gold Class Caranuba Wax, and it's worked excellently. You can tell if your playfield has been waxed by just running your finger across it, because you'll definitely feel a nice smooth surface. And I can't stress enough how important it is to wax a playfield. It is amazing what a difference it makes to a game with a beautifully waxed playfield. The ball just flies around. Now I'll backtrack a bit here regarding playfield restoration. Because to be honest, on location, an unprotected playfield probably isn't the best idea. It pays to remember that the reason my Mighty Princess was in pretty good condition, I'd give her an A-, was because of the mylar. For home use though, if you keep up with the playfield cleaning and also make sure you replace dodgy looking pinballs, because pitted pinballs tear up playfields and it costs you, what, six bucks? And man, it is totally worth it. Then look, for the most part, it should be okay. Failing that, you can also apply your own mylar, or even better, get the playfield clear coated. Now because the Mighty Princess had a few wear spots, I was wary of going either route in case some artistic restorer in the future decided they wanted to touch it up. Because once you apply your new mylar, it would be very tricky pulling it back up again. You might do a lot more damage on the way back up. And obviously adding a hardened layer of liquid clear coat is very final. As an aside, there's a large debate throughout the community and people get fired up about this. And I've been asked about using Mr. Sheen as a playfield polish. In the US, I believe this is the equivalent of Pledge, I think. So Mr. Sheen in a spray can is renowned as a perfectly good polish. And I've heard from workers in the industry back in the day that it's a regular fixture in the workshop and they used it for everything, for rubbers, ramps, you name it. I used to use Mr. Sheen when I got my first pinball machine, but I don't use it anymore. I found a couple of negatives from extended research that made me pause. Primarily, apparently the actual polish itself evaporates away in a few days, so it's not particularly cost effective. Apparently it also leaves behind a silicon residue. And silicon residue is only an issue if you're going to clear coat your playfield one day. It apparently reacts with the clear coat and causes a fisheye effect in the finish. So this is one of those, if you do this and if you do that, something might happen. I don't have any real future plans to clear coat my current playfields, but I felt it prudent to avoid the possibility and use highly recommended playfield cleaning methods instead. Okay, so let's talk about the music. Well, the audio for this is pretty similar to the previous pinball tape episode on Godlib. Look, it's perhaps a step up from the bloops and bleeps of the Godlib System 1 games, but it kind of isn't really that much better. It does, however, have the inclusion of some very satisfying pew-pew noises that nicely punctuate and break up an otherwise classic-sounding early solid-state machine audio palette. It's unfortunately not that immersive. I still love it for what it is though. As I've mentioned before, you learn to love the sound of an extended chain of bloops and bleeps and pew pews. Yeah, pretty great when you're in the moment.
So, gameplay. Okay, let's get into gameplay and strategy. So where do we start? This skill shot, of course, as I say every time. That shot that must be achieved before all others. I've found that in many solid state games, some of them don't really have a skill shot as such. But there's something you should ideally achieve from the plunge. And I like to coin this the best plunge policy. So the best plunge policy for the Mighty Princess is to roll the ball over the top middle lane, the number three rollover switch. Up the top of the playfield, there are one to five rollover lanes. And this is where the plunge sends you. This is the only spot you can get the number three lit. So it's very important that you get it up there. Every other number can also be achieved by stand-up or rollover targets on the playfield. Lighting the number three, the middle rollover lane up top, lights the spinners for a thousand points, which for this game is huge. The kicker, however, is that this feature alternates between the left and right spinners when you hit things in the game. These rollover lane switches up the top, which are unfortunately not controlled by the flipper buttons, but static, unlike the cyclone where you can control the lights and you're moving the lights in front or away from the ball, this adds another element to the game regarding strategy. So the top lanes are all about adding value to the spinners. Now I won't go into much detail about stern electronic spinners in this episode because, I warn you, I'll be positively gushing about them in a future episode. Suffice to say, they are one of the best in the business around this time and create their own element of gameplay where shooting for them can be as lucrative as other primary objectives. Basically, the different numbers add value to the spinners. Spinners are initially worth 200 points per spin and they can be juiced up to 2,000 points per spin. This is what I love about Stern Electronics games and what they truly understood when it comes to rules. Basically, if spinners are engineered and juiced properly, they can be very valuable to the player and worth hitting at full tilt to maximize the spin. So to break it down, rollover one adds 400 to the left spinner, while number two adds an additional 400 to that spinner. So that gives you 200 per spin plus another 800, another 1,000. And rollover four on five, add 400 each to the right spinner. So if you do the math from all that, basically the spinner adds up to 2,000 points. And if you can rip them at full tilt, whew, good times. The spinner on the right of the Cosmic Princess leads to the pot bumpers almost essentially. So that can be a bit dangerous to throw that one up there, but you might get it in the bonus kick out hole. And if you kick out the bonus, you get extra points. The one on the left-hand side would probably be the main one to go for. That would arc it straight back up the back again. From memory, I think you also light the extra ball by getting all these, the one to five rollover lanes lit. Extra ball is interesting in the Cosmic Princess, as it is extremely difficult to achieve. I guess that's how extra ball should be, really. It is the rollover switch on the left in lane, which is super hard to get on purpose. And because it's the in lane, you can't even do it via an alley pass. My version of Cosmic Princess had an improved ROM where you could either choose for extra ball to alternate between the in lanes or stay still. The original rule set was for alternating in-lanes, which meant that the extra ball light went on and off, essentially, making it even harder. I should mention also that I actually love the playfield art, but the extra ball and special lights are a bit unclear as to where they actually are. If you look at the lights near the flippers, it wasn't originally clear to me that they are supposed to be pointing at the in-lanes. So you see extra ball on the left and special on the right. It seems obvious now that I'm talking about it, but I really wasn't sure when I first played the game. So aside from spinners, what else do we do on this cosmic chick? The main and most obvious option for points is the excellent memory drop target bank. Now when I say memory, I mean they are individually controlled with a solenoid per drop target, which is an 
awesome feature of this game and a stern electronics staple. This allows the banks to reset with different numbers of targets being presented to you as you progress through the banks. Basically it starts out with two targets up out of a possible five and when you drop them down it pops up three and so on and so forth. You basically get points plus a bonus advance. So if you've got two targets up, you knock them down, you get 5,000 points. And three targets pop up, you knock them down, 10,000 points. Four come up, you knock them down, you get 20,000 points. And then if you've got all five, you are locked in to get 30,000 points every time you drop them down. Now, when you get up to 30,000 points per drop, things get very serious. And like every good game, things light up like a Christmas tree and you know you're doing well. There is a delightful mixture in stress when you get everything humming on a pinball machine. You want to enjoy every bloop and pew pew, but make sure you capitalize on the features while they are ready and waiting for you. I've talked about this before, but it's a classic pinball scenario where you carefully line up everything only to brutally drain. It may furrow the brow, but also hardens your resolve to once again face the silver bowl battle. How do we approach this fickle princess? To be honest, my strategy revolved mainly around the drop targets. The drop target bank location is actually quite fair and doesn't necessarily give you dangerous shots back once you've hit them, but the caveat being that they are directly next to the nest of three pop bumpers, making the exit from this area extremely hair-raising. You can often get a win by skimming the closest pop bumper to the drop targets, the one closest to the flippers out of the three of them, and it cleans up a few drop targets with a ricochet action. The safest way of approaching these targets is by cradling the ball on the left flipper and backhanding them directly up above. It's a bit tricky, but with a light touch you can avoid the pop bumpers and get your ball back to the left flipper. This can work really well when you have all five targets up and running. The issue you face with a smaller amount of drop targets is something I'd like to coin, coining a lot of things today, I call Drop Target Propulsion, or DTP. I'd actually be interested to know from anyone, feel free to email me at thepinballtapes at gmail.com, if there is an official term for this kind of pinny phenomenon. What I'm referring to is a situation where the drop target bank resets while the ball is essentially on top of the drop targets. So you hit the target down, the ball's kind of still in there, and the targets pop up again and repel the ball away, causing all sorts of chaos. On the princess, because of the nature of the target's reset pattern, you find yourself getting DTPs, trademark pending, far more often. This causes the ball to be pushed into the pop bumpers and then the ball is wild once again. Also, in reference to a previous comment regarding the designs of Harry Williams, the interesting design feature of our Cosmic Lady is that it has no slingshots around the flippers. We have two in lanes on either side and one out lane on either side, but the slingshots are about halfway up the playfield on either side, making for some interesting and hair-raising sideways action. In pinball, when balls start flying sideways, you know the battle has fully begun. It is the least desired and most feared situation in the chase for the silver ball. There are also other features on the Cosmic Princess. The inlines can get lit for some pretty good points, but the trouble is you really don't aim for them very much. And there's obviously a collect bonus kickout hole on the right-hand side. It's an interesting one, this one, because you can't actually aim directly for it. 
So I find if you go for the right spinner, it can often ricochet into the bonus. And obviously the bonus is something that, as I've said many times before, something that builds up during play and you can collect it kind of like a jackpot. From memory, the bonus was worth decent points, but it really is a game about getting your drop targets down. I guess that sums it up for our Cosmic Lady. The gameplay is quite simple. It's mainly about the drop target bank, but there's also juicing up the spinners, which adds to the element to the game. They're quite difficult to get all the numbers lit, unless you can nail that left orbit shot that takes you right up the back and keep getting them that way, which is probably a good approach, actually, because you can get a bit of spinner action on the way. The drop target bank is probably what you need to go for, but with those pop bumpers nearby, it can make it very tricky indeed. From the right flipper... Hitting the drop target is super satisfying. They can often send it into the rollover lanes up the back as well. So there you have it, pin peeps. The rare, unique and mysterious Stern Electronics Cosmic Princess. A game full of allure and mystery where the designer and the artist may never be recovered. And I highly recommend you play it if you ever get a chance. And hopefully your star signs with a line and the cosmos will be Thanks for listening. The Pinball Tapes is an original concept written and edited by me, Zach Collier. The original music in this episode, including the title track, The Octagon and the Saw, were written and played by my band, The Sea Thieves. You can listen and follow The Sea Thieves on Bandcamp, Apple Music, Tidal and Spotify. If you want to get in touch with corrections and comments, you can email me at thepinballtapes at gmail.com. I also can't leave without shamelessly plugging my wife and I's cafe bar and event space called The Jade. If you like seeing some live music, having a party or simply enjoying an excellent coffee or cold beverage, while playing pinball of course, then come and visit us at 142 to 160 Flinders Street, Adelaide, South Australia. At the time of this recording, the mighty Cyclone's on site in our cosy heritage front bar, just waiting for you to experience its kinetic magic. Keep an ear out for future episodes, and I have more games to explore with you. Stay cool, Daddy-O. Zach signing out.